Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And joining me on today's show is Luke Boggs. Luke, how are you doing? I'm doing good. I appreciate how every week you you say it like it's a surprise, like exciting. We have a guest. It's Luke. Special guest. Special guest, Luke Boggs. You're always, always special in my heart. On today's show, we're probably going to bounce around. We haven't gotten together in a little bit, at least gotten together for the podcast in a little bit, uh, had a good run watching Kenobi, which just wrapped up this week, which was a great, great show. On today's show, we're going to run through the runoff results, the primary runoffs where Stacey Abrams went three for three in her endorsements for Democratic candidates to make out the Democratic ticket for statewide races in November. While Donald Trump, yet again, he had another rough night in Georgia, uh, two of his endorsements in congressional primary runoffs lost uh, his, his, I guess his favorite Democrat, maybe Vernon Jones, Democrat turned Republican, lost in the 10th district to Mike Collins. And uh, he also backed Jake Evans, a first time candidate in the sixth congressional district. He lost to Rich McCormick. So we're going to talk about the outcomes of those races. We're also going to talk about the string of negative stories that keep coming out about Herschel Walker. At this point, the number of negative things about him is pretty wild. And it's kind of hard to keep up with. So we're going to work through those and work through what that means for his campaign going forward. And then we'll also talk about Democrats and what they can do about the state of the economy, what they can do about people's frustration with the economy, particularly as it relates to inflation and gas prices. It's a pretty tough issue for Democrats right now. And then the January 6th commission, they had their Georgia day at the commission where they had three people from Georgia that, uh, Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State, Gabriel Sterling, his top aide, and a Fulton County elections worker named Shea Moss, who testified about what happened following the 2020 election as Congress looks at the events that led up to the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. And then we'll wrap up the show today with uh, some of Stacey Abrams' initial policy proposals and how they are kind of building on what Brian Kemp did, trying to go bolder than Brian Kemp, and, and how his team responded as we head to the general election in that race. So pack show for today. It's a little bit of a grab bag. We may even hit on other things. We'll see. Um, but Luke, let's start with the runoff results and let's start with Democrats. Um, in some ways, I guess there were, there weren't a ton of surprises on election night from these races that the three races that people had interest in were the three races that Stacey Abrams made an endorsement in. She endorsed Charlie Bailey for Lieutenant Governor. She endorsed B. Wynn for Secretary of State. And she endorsed State Representative William Bodie for Labor Commissioner. And her preferred candidates won all three of those races. The other uh, statewide race that had a primary runoff was Janice Laws Robinson, who's going to get a second crack at the uh, insurance commissioner position. She wins the Democratic nomination for that one. Luke, any takeaways from Democratic runoff primary night for you? Well, the first thing I'll say is uh, loving opportunity to be uh, complimentary towards Stacey Abrams. I think she did an excellent job in getting involved in these races and pointing out who she thought would be best. Uh, to run with her uh, because I, I know a lot of candidates and politicians are very hesitant to do endorsements when they're also on the ballot. But I think in 
pretty much all these races and I, I am biased because I also voted for these folks and these are who, you know, the people I was supporting before, um, Abrams got involved in the race. It's just, there were clearly better candidates, both for building out the ticket, their experience, what plans they have for the office, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think Abrams did a good job getting involved. I am sure that helped uh, because just frankly, these are low information, low turnout races and Abrams endorsement. Now I, I'm not going to go and say that like they pushed all these folks over the top and they will have lost without it, but it helped. And I think showing that, I mean, all, all three of the candidates, well, really all four of the wingers on the statewide democratic side had pretty good margins. And I think that's just, it built confidence in the party's decisions and i i just i just think all in all uh democrats did a good job <laughs> uh, for once and i i'm really excited about the slate of candidates we have as we're going to talk about uh later there's a question of how much will it matter <laughs> but even if uh it doesn't matter i at least am happy that um i'm pretty excited to vote for all of our candidates i don't expect anyone to embarrass us and i think this will be a, a really good team and we're going to do the best we can and that's a lot better than I have said, you know, felt in, in previous years. I mean, I remember in 2014 where all these races were uncontested and nobody cared basically, or were barely contested. So, uh, I, I'm really happy that we had races that had enough viable candidates that we, we had some, you know, choices to make. And I, I feel good about the choices the Georgian democratic voters made. Yeah. What do you think about the, the ticket just real quick as we look forward to this ticket headed to the general election. The ticket, I, I think you can take away that it's a pretty diverse ticket. It it's is a historically diverse ticket, as it, they started to say. It is pretty reflective of the state of Georgia and particularly reflective of the Democratic electorate in the state of Georgia. You have multiple African-American candidates at the top. B. Wynn, uh, I believe, would be the first Asian-American elected to a statewide constitutional She may office. also be the first nominee of a party. I'm pretty sure that's true. Uh, I'm sure someone will correct me if I'm not, but I'm pretty sure that's true. The, I think the other takeaway that I had from the ticket is, and, and this may be a place where Stacey Abrams' endorsement did matter, when you have Charlie Bailey in the slot as lieutenant governor. Winning um, with 63% of the vote, over 63 you're that means you're not going to have Kwanzaa Hall as the nominee and Kwanzaa Hall both kind of barely participated in the campaign for this race. He didn't go to either Atlanta press club debate. He also uh, was under some scrutiny as related to a, an employment position that he held with the city of Atlanta. I believe it was an economic development authority and, and WSB channel two looked into this, did an investigation yeah, there was some question of whether or not Kwanzaa Hall was allowed to uh, serve in an employment position with the city of Atlanta so closely following the time that he was a city councilman for in the city of Atlanta. And so, you know, sort of neither here nor there, but that is at least one instance where you don't have a built-in negative story about some personal aspect of any of these candidates. You know, obviously Republicans are going to hit them on, on negative things politically, but I think for the most part, um, across the entire statewide slate for Democrats, you don't really have any candidates that stand out for bringing a lot of negative personal baggage in the way that 
for instance, Herschel Walker does to the Republican uh, side of the Senate race. Or Burt Jones' new legal baggage. Yes, and and we'll talk about that too. But any other thoughts generally about just the slate that Democrats are going to take to the general in November? Yeah, the only other thing I add is I just think this is emblematic of this trend that I feel like is happening uh, nationwide for Democrats where we have a lot of really excellent candidates running in a horrible, horrible cycle. And so I think that will just be really interesting to watch and to see how these candidates do in, you know, fighting against the the headwinds of the, the national environment. And if we were going to have any successes, I feel like this is a, a great ticket to uh, have some, but I, I just think it's going to be Super difficult for all these candidates. So on the Republican side, the story of the night yet again in Georgia was Trump uh, had a bad night of endorsements for the candidates that he backed, losing on both Vernon Jones and Jake Evans in two congressional runoffs. What do you think about the influence that Donald Trump has on Georgia Republican politics right now? Like, how would you describe what you think his impact in is because you know he's he still looms large he he still feels like he's everywhere but he is not determinative in who republican voters pick uh, to be their candidates and in really almost any of these races in georgia i think what this is emblematic of is that georgia is a kemp state more than it's a trump state Because just to talk about these two races, Mike Collins, who Kemp actually openly endorsed against Trump's endorsed candidate of Vernon Jones, Mike Collins got 74.48% of the vote in his race. And uh, Rich McCormick, who, to be fair, did run for Congress last cycle and did pretty well. uh, And I don't think Kemp endorsed him. Uh, but he got 66.54% of the vote against Jake Evans, who wasn't endorsed by Trump. And so I think what this tells me is that there's something in the Republican electorate that makes them a bit more skeptical of Trump than some other states. I think you could point to a couple things of one, the fact that Trump is a loser in the state of Georgia, both literally and figuratively, you know, literally he lost in 2020 and then figuratively he has a record of picking really, really bad candidates and endorsing incredibly poor strategies because I I don't know for sure if we would Democrats would have run the won the runoff if Trump had just shut up after he lost in 2020. But there is no question that he aggressively hurt those campaigns by making them uh, adopt more radical positions and emphasizing the election was stolen narrative versus, you know, talking about actual issues that Georgians care about. And as we're going to be discussing later, he has picked what I think everyone acknowledges as a dumpster fire of a Senate candidate and Herschel Walker. And that's being generous. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, it's like at this point, like I kind of feel bad because I've started to feel like I'm punching down when I talk about Herschel Walker because he has so many problems. Um, but I feel a little less bad since they're pretty much all self-created. Um, and so I, I just think a lot of Georgian voters are like, we, we appreciate your input, input, Mr. Trump, but 
Like, we're going to put our faith in Rich McCormick, who almost won last time and definitely will win this time. And, you know, that's no insult to Jake Evans because for the Republican Party, he's been just as, you know, uh, radical as everyone else. But, like, Vernon Jones was, is truly a dumpster fire with almost as many scandals as Herschel Walker. And so the giant smackdown that he he got in his race is not surprising to me. And I, I think just Georgian voters, even on the Republican side, are a little bit better judges of who makes sense in these races than Trump is because, and this is true of a lot of Trump's endorsements, he feels it's very dilettante. You know, it's like, it's not like Trump is sitting down looking at spreadsheets of polling and really analyzing people's records. It's like, who said nice things to him consistently? Who does he previously know? And so I, I just think in, in a state like Georgia that has a very, very solid Republican establishment, I, and Trump has so aggressively gone after that establishment rather than co-opting it. Uh, I, I think I think that just hurt his ability to be successful in Georgia when in these non-incumbent endorsements. He also, I mean, his endorsements were so personal. Like the endorsement of Vernon Jones was really a way to buy Vernon Jones out of the governor's. Uh, primary when David Perdue was challenging Governor Kemp. Remember that, everybody? Remember David <laughs> Perdue ran for governor? So he endorsed Vernon Jones to get Vernon Jones out of the governor's primary race. Jake Evans, his father, was the ambassador to Luxembourg for the Trump administration um, and, and has long-term ties to, to Republicans like Newt Gingrich, who have been on Trump's side for a long time. For a lot of this, I kind of thought like, you know, some of these candidates had positioned themselves as the Donald Trump really won Georgia, Democrats stole the election kind of candidate. But actually, Mike Collins made an ad where he said that Democrats stole the election in Georgia and that Donald Trump actually won the election. Rich McCormick, I think, has raised questions about the election outcome. And and although they are not quite as like gung ho about it as Donald Trump's most ardent supporters are. There's some skepticism, at least. There's skepticism. And then, for the most part, all of these Republican candidates have embraced the far-right, hardcore conservatism that has come to define the Republican Party, so much so that it makes Brian Kemp almost look like a moderate at times. Um, and so I, I think like the, the kind of politics that Trump has capitalized on and that lives on in the racial grievance politics and the election misinformation politics that has become basically a hallmark of the state political party. Um, that is still alive and well with all of the candidates that are coming through the Republican primaries and will be Republican nominees. And for many of them, including both Rich McCormick and Mike Collins, those guys are going to Congress. Like those are very red districts it's an uphill battle for Democrats to win. I mean, you don't it's, think it's, the third time's the charm for Tabitha Johnson Green, <laughs> who also was the kind of candidate who didn't show up to things. I I voted against her in the the Democratic primary runoff only because I know that she just like blew off some other forum here locally. I think it was in Oconee County, maybe. But yeah, these are Republicans that are going to go to Congress. And, and some of these Republicans on the statewide ticket are likely to get elected given the environment that we have. So I, I think it's, you know, 
it's especially in Georgia, Trump is finding a way almost against all odds to pick some of the worst candidates. And so I, I actually even draw back a little bit on is Donald Trump's influence waning in the Republican party. I think the answer is the politics that he capitalized on and that he helped build is still alive and well. And Donald Trump just is like shitty at picking candidates in a few particular instances. Well, the crown jewel of uh, Donald Trump's bad decisions might be his <laughs> elevation and backing of Herschel Walker. Oh, Herschel. I, I also am starting to kind of feel bad for the guy. Um, I'm just going to run through kind of a list of what are some of the most prominent negative stories about Herschel to come out recently. Um, you've probably seen some of these headlines, but uh, Herschel Walker recently uh it was disclosed that he had three children that he had not previously spoken publicly about. Which is particularly bad since he was continuously going out talking about how deadbeat dads who aren't in their kids' lives should, you know, feel ashamed of themselves when he is doing that. Yeah. Uh, he also has said repeatedly that he used to work in law enforcement, so much so that he said he uh, participated in FBI training school in Quantico, Virginia, and that he worked with the Cobb County Police Department. That all turned out not to be true. Um, the mental health struggles that we've uh, talked about before, Herschel Walker talked about having a shootout with the police and threatened to kill his wife, his therapist, and himself, according to reporting from the Associated Press. Um, this is a part of a long-term struggle with with mental health that he's had, and um, y- you know it's it's worth noting on on Herschel's account there there have been no reports of violent behavior from him for the last decade or so, but but this is something that lingers with him. He also overstated his role in a for-profit program that uh, allegedly was set up to help veterans, but actually ended up pushing them into unneeded mental health care, inpatient mental health care that they uh, described as some veterans described as being trapped in. Uh, Herschel Walker was a spokesperson for that group. He's not alleged to have participated in any of the mistreatment of patients specifically, but he did collect a lot of money being a spokesperson for that group. And then the one that is probably most amusing to me is that he lied about graduating from UGA. He said he was uh, in the top 1% of his class at UGA and he was the valedictorian of his class. And then when challenged about the fact that he did not graduate from UGA because he left to go play professional football after his junior season uh, at Georgia, he lied about the fact that he lied about graduating from UGA <laughs> to maybe Fox he Fives doesn't Russell remember. Spencer. Maybe he doesn't remember. So, I mean, a lot of these things are very personal. Like for any average person, it, it you know, how they approach being a father or struggles that they've had with mental health or how they may exaggerate about their business record or, um, you know, what they, what they did in college, like all of that is personal issues, but he has made so many of these things central to his rationale for his candidacy, both his, he says he's been an effective business person. He said he's helped veterans. Um, he's, as you mentioned, Luke, he's, he's scolded black fathers for not being, uh, engaged in the lives of their children. And then the fact that like all of this is just like being released in kind of this like continuous stream of negative stories, man, like this is not good for his candidacy. (laughs) Well, I will give Herschel the same advice that I give all of my friends, which is it's never too late to quit. And you know that, I mean, that's the thing that consistently makes me 
not feel sorry for Herschel Walker in this situation because he did not have to run for Senate. He could have just stayed as the super popular former, you know, halfback of UGA that brought us a national championship, Herschel Walker, who gets a bunch of money for speaking fees and can, you know, go around and inspire people in athleticism. He decided that he wanted to be a United States senator. And at any moment, if he does not like the heat and scrutiny that he's getting, he can just walk away. And so that makes me not feel sorry for him when he has put himself in this position. And I think it is very bad for his campaign. But the thing that I think this is a really, really interesting test of is um, are these things so bad that the electorate will actually care? Because I think a lot about Tom, uh, Tommy Tupperville in Alabama, who, while is also a football star, at least to my knowledge, did not have scandals like this. The only real big thing I recall in his race that was kind of consistently an issue is like, man, this guy does not seem to be informed on the issues, and he's kind of a carpetbagger, and he's kind of dumb. And he know, did he did treat some of his players like shit when he left. I believe it was when he left Cincinnati. Um, but of course, what he did as the football coach of Cincinnati did not weigh heavily for the voters of Alabama. Right, and 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 so like the fact that the the point I want to make though is like the fact that Tupperville won in Alabama not shocking to me because those were low grade scandals, and really at the end of the day, the voters wanted someone who would vote with the Republicans more than they wanted someone who was better qualified for the job, but ideologically disagreed with them. And we've just reached the point with Herschel Walker that there are so many scandals that are so outrageous and so in the face of how this guy has been presenting himself to the public that, okay, sure. He will vote for the Supreme court justice that you want, but like you have zero confidence that he will make any informed decision beyond what the party tells him to do and that you will not really be able to trust him. And I just, I'm not convinced yet that voters are going to care about this because in polling, it just seems like it hasn't mattered. And I think part of this is the fact that it kind of, it does take time for this stuff to permeate through the electorate. Um, and, you know, my mom's not always the best uh, uh, gauge of this, be, primarily because she gets Florida news being on the border and she's not in a Georgia media market. But it's like she had no idea any of this stuff was going on when I talked to her. And I think that's probably true for lots of other Georgia voters. And in I'm sure by November, people will have a much better gauge on this. But I'm just not sure... Uh, what what reaction folks will have to this because everything is so polarized and but i one thing though i think is another interesting dynamic is the fact that Raphael Warnock is relatively popular too and so i think it, it it's this is one of those weird situations where you this race is particularly suited for something abnormal to happen because i feel like lots of voters have a very positive personal feeling towards Raphael Warnock. Like I have, I have encountered very, very few of my Republican friends who are like, screw Raphael Warnock. I do not like him. Everyone's like, I really like him, but I just disagree with him. Whereas Herschel is becoming this 
everyone doesn't like him, but maybe they agree with him. And so I'm just going to be really curious which force will be stronger uh, because Raphael Warnock's personal brand is very, very strong, whereas Herschel's is, is getting nuked every day, basically. And, and the last thing I'll, I'll say is, uh, and, th and then I actually have a question for you, Kyle, and I'll stop filibustering, is I firmly believe that we have not heard the worst thing yet. Like, I think there there has to be more because it's just when there's this much smoke and actual fire, there's there's probably some accelerants and flammable materials that have not been hit yet. And so I, I think there's going to be more. And so my, my two questions to you, Kyle, is what should Herschel Walker personally do? <laughs> and then what should he politically do? Uh, because I feel like one of those questions is a lot easier than the other. I mean, personally, the guy should get some help. I mean, so it does. It does seem like he has gotten some help and maybe stabilized his his mental health condition. And I, and I do want to reiterate that you know, I don't want to be critical of the fact that he has mental health issues, and those should not be disqualifying by their very nature. But you know, they have contributed to erratic behavior, um, and it you know, it's not just the interpersonal stuff with his family. It, you know, it's the way he presents himself as a businessman, as a public person. And I think those things are inbounds about how you think about the kind of senator he would be. Because being a senator and making decisions on behalf of the state of Georgia, on behalf of the public, is very similar to the kinds of things you would do as a businessman or as a frontman for a, a charity that is allegedly helping veterans when it's not actually doing that. Um, I mean, politically, like... <laughs> What is going to happen is what has been happening throughout this race so far, the way that Herschel Walker treated the primary, is that he is going to stay in friendly media as much as possible. He is going to rely on the fact that his base of voters are so distrustful of traditional media that he can basically go to those people and say, actually, like, none of this is true. This is all trumped up and mischaracterized stuff by the media. And they're Though only so doing far, that. I don't think he's done that on some of this stuff, but no, I mean, I, you know, he, he did say, you know, he's never lied about the fact that he had three children. He's never like, you know, claimed to not have those children. He just hasn't been public about it and that's private and that's fine, whatever. Um, you know, and, and he has been, you know, the initial focus on his history with mental health issues is in part because of how forthright he was about his uh, challenges with disassociative identity disorder. Um, but I think what his team is going to have him do, he is a first time candidate. He has not demonstrated an ability to sort of be politically savvy or drive a message on his own. And so his team is going to coddle him. He's going to keep him in friendly media, keep him out of unfriendly media. And then they are going to just relentlessly tie Raphael Warnock to Joe Biden and people's negative feelings about the economy, about the direction of the country. And they're just going to kind of hunker down and hope that that is what works. Because is that, is that what you think they should do? Because you kept, because that, you know, that's, that's the nuance of my question is I was wondering what you think you should do. Which, yeah. I think, I, think I, I agree. I think that's actually what he should do. Um, I think it's what he should do too, because he hasn't demonstrated. I mean, I would feel differently if it turned out that, Oh, Herschel Walker was this very persuasive speaker who could lift up his personal story in a way that makes him look good and not bad and have him overcome all of the obstacles that have been presented by his past behavior. 
he hasn't demonstrated an ability to do that. And he hasn't demonstrated an ability to be engaged on the issues, to drive a message about the kinds of things he would do as a senator or the type of senator he would be for the state of Georgia. I actually think it's, you know, it's it's interesting that Warnock's message, his like tagline is like for Georgia. I'm doing this for Georgia. I'm trying to lower insulin prices for Georgia. I'm trying to lower healthcare costs for Georgia. He is very much Raphael Warnock is very much rooted in the types of things that he can do if you give him a full six-year term. And Herschel Walker, I think, just cannot compete on those grounds. And so they'll run negative campaigns about Warnock's situation with his ex-wife and, and his children, which is not nearly as negative as the, the personal issues that Herschel Walker has experienced, but they will try to equate the two and then maybe cancel those out. And then they'll focus on the negativity around Democrats generally and try to tag Warnock with all of that. And I do think that's their best strategy because it is the best way to insulate Herschel Walker against all of this criticism. You know, But if they're successful in doing that, then we will basically have an empty suit as a senator because he has not demonstrated at all in any capacity that he is qualified or well-prepared to do this job. On that note, though, let's go right into the headwinds that the Democrats are facing and the the stuff that Herschel Walker's campaign is going to tag Raphael Warnock and National Democrats with. Um, and, and primarily, I think that's the state of the economy and people's frustration with inflation generally, and in particular, with high gas prices. Um, there was a little bit of a kerfuffle, uh, I think, primarily on Georgia politics, Twitter, there was a pack that supporting Herschel Walker that gave out uh, vouchers for free gas at a gas station in the Atlanta area, uh, basically to highlight how high gas prices are and, and Raphael Warnock's inability to get anything done about lowering those gas prices. Um, and I think people feel pretty negatively about the state of the economy now. And then you add in that because of high rates of inflation, some of the highest inflation that we've seen since the 1980s. The Federal Reserve has recently increased interest rates and is probably going to continue to do so through the end of the year, which has the uh, risk of tipping the national economy into a recession. And the idea, even just the word recession, and the idea that Joe Biden might have taken a thriving economy and put it into a recession within two years is something that's going to be a real drag for Democratic candidates. Um, and Warnock, to his credit, he is pushing for solutions that would reduce costs for people. He has made a really high-profile issue out of trying to reduce the cost of insulin for people who rely on that. Um, he has also encouraged the Biden administration to support lifting the federal gas tax, suspending it for suspending it for, I, I believe, through the end of the year. Joe Biden recently uh, came out and said he supported that idea, although it requires an act of Congress to do it. And, you know, people generally, I think, have a malaise about the state of the economy, and that is going to put a lot of drag on Democrats' chances and put a lot of drag on Democrats' chances in November. And Luke, I don't know. I'm at a loss about what Democrats will be able to do about it. I think it's clear that Democrats should be focused on helping people deal with increased costs, but they haven't demonstrated an ability to legislate really beyond the uh, immediate 
rescue response to the coronavirus crisis early in, in Joe Biden's term. I don't know. What, it, <laughs> what do you think? How, what, what should Democrats be doing? And is there any chance that they're actually going to do the things that I think we all know and they all know they should be doing? I think Raphael Warnock has been doing <clears throat> exactly what he should be doing as a U.S. senator, which is advocating for leg- legislation and pushing the president to do more. And I I hope that voters will give him credit for that um, because, there, you know, he can't do the things that Joe Biden can do that I think Joe Biden should do. And that is... Joe Biden needs to remember that he is not the chief senator. He is the president. And he needs to do things that only the president can do. Because I, right now, if CNN would put a camera on me, I could say, man, these gas prices are out of control, and the refineries should be producing more, and the you know gas companies should not be gouging everyone. I could do that. But what I can't do is take a pen and sign a order for, you know, the Defense Production Act to, you know, use government funds to open refineries and to work, you know, have uh, a new shift of employees working 24-7, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week in these factories. And, you know, I could, you know, bend regulations and do a lot of things as president that would be very proactive. And would someone sue me and probably stop me from doing it? Yeah, maybe, but like get in the fight, like make Americans understand that you are doing everything you can possibly do to help this situation because this is a crisis, uh, you know, because not every crisis is the moon falling or a war somewhere else. Like this is a everyday slow rolling crisis where every single American no matter if you're rich or poor, is getting incredibly squeezed by the economy, by the lack of production. And like almost all of the inflation issues are supply issues. And there are things that the president can do to make supply situations better. And like I said, let someone try to stop him from, you know, using the Defense Production Act to make more gas. Like let the lefty you know, environmentalists freak out at you and let the Republicans say that you're being a socialist. Because if you're getting in a fight where you're saying, I am trying to make more gas and these folks are fighting me, Joe Biden will come out good in that situation because he either successfully does it and lowers gas prices, or he can point to, you know, the people who are stopping him and saying that I'm doing everything I can because right now Democrats are stuck in this place where it doesn't seem like we're actually in charge of anything or we're just commentators saying wow things are super bad looking it'd be great if they weren't (laughs) you know like that that's basically how i feel like we're talking a lot of the times and and warnock is a a good exception to this where he at least is proposing actual concrete things we could do but i just don't understand why the executive branch is so atrophied in this and and like i said I, i think it's really just the fact that uh, Joe Biden's never been a governor. He's never been an executive. He's been a senator for a really long time. Well, I guess you could, you know, vice president's executive, but you know what I mean. He hasn't been really, truly in charge of something until now, and I, I just think that is showing, and it is very difficult for any candidate for office to do anything about it because, similarly, it's not like Abrams can go out there and credibly tell Georgians that like Brian Kemp is the cause of all these high gas prices and he's the cause of inflation. You know, it's very clear to everybody that this is a nationwide problem. And so it puts her in a hard place because 
her, you know, the president is of her, of her party. Well, and to add what Stacey Abrams is calling to be done on gas prices right now is for Governor Kemp to extend his suspension of the state gas tax. Which is terrible policy, so, but, you know, we'll, we can put that aside. Well, but for what it's worth, like, Kemp suspended the state gas tax earlier this summer. He had the ability to do it basically unilaterally. And I, I don't know if there's a limited time frame for which he can do it, but he did it. Georgia has among the lowest gas prices in the nation. It may not feel that way because it is still very expensive, but it is, gas prices here, I've driven in a lot of states the last few months, gas prices here in Georgia are lower than they are in other places. And that has made a difference. And then what Stacey Abrams is left to do is say, Brian Kemp should just do more of what he's doing, <laughs> which is like a tough position to be. Like, is Stacey Abrams going to vote for Brian Kemp? Like, <laughs> yeah, know? I was about to say, Stacey Abrams' new campaign slogan. I'm more Brian Kemp than Brian Kemp. <laughs> well, we're going to talk, and maybe that's where we should go because that yeah, has become a that has become an interesting thread in the last week of the governor's race. Is she really is has launched two policy proposals where she frames herself as she wants to be more like Brian Kemp than Brian Kemp because she has called for him to extend his suspension of the gas tax through the end of the year. Side note, if Brian Kemp is smart politically, he will do that. She has also called for uh, or issued a proposal that would raise the starting salary for teachers in the state from 39000 to 50000 and would raise average teacher salaries in the state from 62000 to 73000 which she says would move Georgia into the top 10 nationally of teacher salaries. She has also called for more spending on law enforcement, including raising the base salary for state troopers, for state correctional employees, raising those base salaries to $50,000 a year, and providing $25 million in grants to help local police departments raise the salaries of their officers. Those build on things that Brian Kemp did, raising teacher pay by $5,000, raising uh, all state employee pay by $5,000, um, which includes all of the state state law enforcement, state correctional officers, all the people that, that Stacey Abrams has covered in her proposal. And so Stacey's like, initial swing in the general election of this race is, I just want to be Brian Kemp, but bigger. Now, obviously, she has other criticisms. She has paired her public safety proposal uh with the she has paired in her public safety proposal with the increases of pay for law enforcement with also repealing what she describes as governor Kemp's criminal carry law this is the constitutional carry provision that passed the legislature last session and she wants police departments that take state funds to adopt uh, better use of force guidelines um, and to create a database of law enforcement officers who have been dismissed repeatedly because they've been violating policies, uh, probably by harming people that they're supposed to protect, um, and trying to stop them from being rehired at other police departments, which is something that happens pretty commonly. But Luke, I, I was surprised by just this dynamic of, you know, we've kind of like grumbled a little bit about Stacey Abrams inability to make news and inability to draw strong contrasts with governor Kemp that are persuasive to people. But then this big policy push in the last week is like Kemp, but bigger and more expensive. <laughs> what do you think about that approach? I think it's so frustrating because one, it feels so much unlike Abrams in 2018 where Abrams did seem to be like a different bold vision 
against Brian Kemp. And I feel like Kemp was responding to her far more than she was responding to him. And to give her credit and a little bit of slack, that's just natural when you're running against an incumbent. It's a lot harder to be as original and, and and Kemp has a lot more of the initiative because of the fact he's the governor and he can do a lot of things that uh, can make news and to set positions. And so you're kind of playing off the incumbent uh, a lot more. Um, but I think the frustrating thing for me about these proposals is not that they're bad proposals. I think they're both great proposals because um, one, Georgia teachers are underpaid even with the admirable raises that Kemp did, and uh, Georgia uh, law enforcement's also underpaid too because as much as people you know, are unhappy with the work that law enforcement is doing, it, it doesn't help anyone if you can't recruit qualified competent dedicated people to these positions and so you have to have good people in these positions and without good pay you can't expect there to be good quality and so i i, I agree with both these proposals i think the problem with it is it's so reminiscent of the problems i think we had in 2014 and why those races went so bad was i feel like jason carter and michelle nunn's message was so much of a we're like republicans but nicer uh and now abrams now is it's like we're, we're like republicans but, but we'll spend more money right and like yeah it's like that's not great and i think what the problem is is that this just completely misses the moment because one as you very astutely point out like it's about spending more money when people are nervous about that and like yes obviously Teachers and cops and Georgia State employees all deserve more money because they're some of the most underpaid in the nation. But I think emphasizing that versus kind of similar to what I was talking about with Joe Biden, talking about things only the governor can do. Because if Stacey Abrams was still minority leader, she could suggest that we pay teachers more and suggest that we pay cops more. There's so much more a governor can do. And this has been one of my frustrations with Abrams is that she has, despite being a good executive from everything we've seen and seeming to like executive positions more than legislative positions, she has been in a very legislative mindset. And almost everything that she's advocating that she do, that I see that makes news, that percolates to me, is legislative things that, frankly, she's probably not going to be able to do because she's going to have a Republican legislature unless something very strange happens. And so I think... Though a lot of this is budget. Yeah. Like spending money well, you can, on teachers. You can raises it, but budget. the legislature, you know, you could say, you know, $100,000 for, you know, the alternative to policing fund, but the legislature doesn't have to give you a dime. And they can cross that out and say, you know, Vigo us, we don't care. Uh, and so I, I, I do agree that, like, yes, the governor does set the budget, uh, but to some extent, it, it is not recognizing the truth that the legislature is who has the power to determine what the budget will be and I'm, I'm sure if she won she would get some of the she'd get a lot of what she wants because it's it's very difficult to fight the governor on everything and so i'm sure she'd have some wins and I, and these would be easy things to give her wins on um but i i think it also just again it fails to how how okay let's say we do this how does that radically change things in georgia how does that um improve things significantly more because the principal problem i have with it is while the again great things i agree with them it's what kemp's already done and so it's not even like a real fight 
because it's not it's not creating it's it's not creating a referendum on Brian Kemp to say that you think teachers and uh, cops should be paid more in Georgia because Brian Kemp can just say, Leaguer Abrams, I already did that. And I don't want to raise taxes. And I have to raise taxes if I did it more. And that is such a hard argument. And like, why would you league with this? Because Kemp can look really reasonable. It's like, I measured, you know, I measured our taxes. I measured our budget how much money we have. I made this very sane, logical decision and I pushed us forward and I did the first pay increase and yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's just like, it, it just seems so reductive to just be like, yeah, you, we should do what Kemp did, but more. And it's just it's so frustrating because it just does not, it's just like they can do better than this. And I don't know why they're not. It's, well, it's, it's it's very conservative, actually. Is I guess what I'm getting at is like I feel like Abrams was a lot bolder last time, and she was a lot willing to like swing for the fences. And I, I feel like I, I don't know why. I'm not, so I'm not gonna like try to 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 guess why. But this just like it, this is gonna be your signature push that you're gonna do what Kemp did, but bigger. Well, I don't. I mean, I think to be fair to Abrams, there are. I I do think that. As, as a matter of policy, I think it is actually clever for her to tie increased investments in law enforcement with some of the changes that people who are critical of law enforcement want to see. Um, I mean, with the exception of people on the far left who, and I did see Mariah Parker, who's a, a member of the city council here in athens Clark County, um, she called this a massive messaging loss or massive messaging L um, in that this was going to diminish the uh, number of young organizers who would have knocked doors for Stacey Abrams. I think there is going to be some sort of grumbling from people on the far left about centering increased pay for law enforcement officials. And, and these are the people who would like to see significantly less funding going to policing. But I do think that like leveraging investments in police as a policy matter and tying those investments to some of the policy changes that would hopefully result in law enforcement treating people better as a policy matter. I think that's clever and that's a good idea. And it is a way to sort of push through what the Republican response is going to be. And in fact, what team Kemp's response already has been, which is like, yeah, this is a cover your ass proposal for Stacey Abrams because she's previously said that she would defund the police and she serves on a board of an organization that has elevated calls to defund the police. And so what Stacey Abrams really is, is a defund the police candidate, not an invest in law enforcement candidate. That's the Republican argument. And what I, it already I will, is and what it's going to be. Say, I think that's a weak argument on their point. Cause I, I do want to say, I, I don't, think that these are bad proposals i think these should be proposals and should be part of abram's platform but you and i have or at least me <laughs> have been frustrated that it doesn't seem like abram's is doing as much and really putting out bigger ideas and at least as far as i have seen these are the only ideas that have really risen to the top and making a news and it's just it's frustrating to me that like these issues are the only ones that anyone's talking about when it is so reductive of what kemp's doing and i think kemp's response to it is the you know it's exactly what you expect from his team of like pushing the culture war issues and accusing abrams of being disingenuous but i i think it's such a lost opportunity for them because the argument i would 
you know make if i was them was saying that like we've already raised we've already raised the salaries it has shown xyz improvements this was a measure thing you know we have to balance we have a responsibility to balance the budget budget and you know just take it as a she's being unrealistic rather than accusing her of lying but you know i i do recognize that probably raises less money and probably is less politically convincing so you know i i the good governance lying is not always the best campaigning lying and i you know i recognize that too well on teacher pay that was the response Kemp's team basically said, we we made a responsible increase in teacher pay that was needed. We did it without raising taxes. And Stacey Abrams' giant teacher pay increase would contribute to inflation, require a tax increase, um, and continue the runaway spending of the Joe Biden administration. Um, so they're they're hitting her on, on both points from that. Um, you know, I, I think like, I don't, in some ways, I think that it is reflective of the places where I believe she will have a lot of leverage, which is over the budget. You know, she can sit there and, and talk until she's blue in the face about repealing constitutional carry. She's not going to have the votes for that. And everyone knows that. Um, although, you know, you know, maybe guns will become a more polarizing issue. But like, you know, it, it seems like the Senate, the U.S. Senate may be poised to kind of diffuse that issue with a small bipartisan agreement that they may pass. And then the true larger changes that would actually significantly reduce gun violence are going to be both out of reach at the state level because the Supreme court today, uh, overturned a New York law that was a much more stringent, uh, restriction on gun ownership that no other state is going to be allowed to put into effect. Stacey Abrams is going to have the votes for those kinds of policies in the legislature. Um, and the country is probably going to yet again move on from horrific gun violence that we talked about. Uh, we talked about so many times. Um, so I don't know. I, I think that these are interesting ideas. And I think that her sort of prioritizing what she can do with the budget is a decent approach. I think you've just got to come back to helping people with costs. I think that that is the big thing that that Democrats need to hone in on right now and need to have real ideas to do that. And it is true that raising teacher pay, raising the pay of state employees like law enforcement officers, it also, we should also have higher pay for other state employees and other agencies who are not just law enforcement. Those pay increases are aimed at helping people deal with higher costs caused by inflation. And then, you know, she does have on her her policy page, she has the kind of extensive proposals that she had last time. These are just the two that are sort of part of the early uh, press push by her team. So I, I do think that we're going to see more, but but just that sort of approach out of the gate of like Kemp but Boulder, I, I do think was, was kind of interesting. Let's wrap here with the uh, what I've called Georgia Day at the January 6th commission hearings. This is an ongoing set of hearings uh, coordinated by the January 6th commission and in Congress. This is a couple of Republicans, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, who are on this committee along with a few Democrats who have looked at both the events of January the 6th, the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol, where people sought to stop the Congress from certifying the presidential election results, as well as the role of President Trump and his campaign and his team in all of the election misinformation and challenging the outcome of the election that led up to January 6th. 
And uh, you you may have seen in the press by now, but uh, there was, I think, really riveting testimony, really enraging and, and heartbreaking testimony from uh, Shay Moss, the Fulton County elections worker, along with her mother, Ruby Freeman, who described the impact that all of this election misinformation and specifically naming Shay Moss in the conspiracy theories about, you know, suitcases of ballots and all the other bullshit about how the the votes were counted in Georgia in the 2020 election. She talked about how, you know, she barely leaves her house, about how she is so afraid to be recognized or for her name to be heard in public because she doesn't know how people will react. She talked about Trump supporters breaking into her grandmother's house to attempt a citizen's arrest of her grandmother, which is just completely wild. And and all of this plays directly into the thing that people might remember, which is Gabriel Sterling's press conference in December of 2020, where he told both President Trump and at the time Senators Perdue and Leffler and all of the people who were raising election misinformation bullshit that they needed to cut it out because somebody could get hurt. And as it turned out, there were both innocent people, elections workers like Shea Moss and also a contractor uh, who worked on voting machines in Gwinnett County that were named specifically and outed as a part of these conspiracy theories. And then, of course, there were people that died at the insurrection at the Capitol on January the 6th. Oh, and then you also heard from Raffensperger, who talked about his daughter-in-law's home being uh, broken into and the types of threatening texts that both Brad Raffensperger and his wife received as a part of all the the shit that came down on them. What did you think of of that testimony and, and what any of this really means, you know, politically or in the sense of accountability for President Trump and Republicans who backed his election conspiracies? Well, that's a big question. So I'm going to keep it focused on what I feel vaguely qualified to talk about, which is Georgia and uh, feelings. So starting with feelings, guy, all that was so heartbreaking. And just so the frustration to me is just how there's such a malignancy at the heart of it is, you know, Donald Trump knows all this stuff is BS, some part deep inside of him. He knows all the people who are harassing these folks. Some of them know, uh, some of them don't, but I, I it, it just, it's so frustrating because these, at the end of the day, with the exception of Brad Raffensperger, all these folks are just normal human beings doing their jobs, not politicians. They did not run to be in the spotlight. They are just trying to have a normal life and just to be so aggressively attacked for no reason based off of insane conspiracy theories and having the president of the United States, the most powerful person in the world come after you based off of insanity is just so, so unreasonable and so unacceptable. And the fact that so little has been done as far as consequences for those actions is infuriating. And there's very little else you know, I, I can I can think to say on that point. As far as, you know, the races in Georgia, politics in Georgia, the fact that Raffensperger is testifying, sitting there as the 
Republican nominee for Secretary of State and not the recently defeated Republican, you know, previous Republican nominee for Secretary of State, I think is good. <laughs> it gives me a little bit of hope that, you know, you can stand up to Trump, who ultimately is a bully more than anything else, and that he can give an honest, brutal testimony about what he experienced and the pressure that Trump put him under and the, I mean, to me, very obviously illegal conduct of the president and the fact that Raffensperger was willing to go up there and testify when so many other people who are in so much easier positions like Mike Pence, who could testify and would not have to worry about their personal safety uh, nearly as much as Brad Raffensperger does or his political safety for that point. It's so frustrating that there's so few people who are willing to stand up and, and talk about what they've experienced and to, you know, say what's so obviously right, like Brad Raffensperger, Gabe Sterling and Shea Moss. And it, it, it's just so, so, so deeply upsetting to me that these three folks have to do this, that the fact that the Republican Party has failed to shake off the malignant cancer that is Donald Trump, who is just an aggressive, irrational bully, uh, it, is, it is very, very frustrating that they have to do it. Um, but I'm very happy that they did do it. And I think as much as it frustrates me as someone who really likes and respects B. Wynn, uh, that Brad Raffensperger gets a bunch of credit, but he deserves it. Like, he deserves the credit for being one of the few Republicans who's actually standing up for what's right and what's constitutional and what's, you know, American values. And I'm I'm just happy that we're not sitting here discussing how disgusted we are that Brad Raffensperger waffled and did some, you know, illegal thing to try to give Trump Georgia that was unsuccessful or successful. I'm happy that we live in the, the version of reality where Raffensperger did the right thing and that he is willing to put himself out there to talk about that Trump asked him to do something that was fundamentally wrong. In terms of how it does linger in the short term in our politics. Um, <clears throat> I do think that there is a little bit of grumbling from state Democrats and people who support state Democrats that Brad, Ruff Brad Raffensperger got such glowing uh, reviews for his testimony that house Democrats in the Congress were, were appreciative of Brad Raffen Raffensperger's bravery in the way in which he pushed back on Trump and did not give in to, to Trump's demands for illegal conduct because they would frame Brad Raffensperger as somebody who supported Senate bill 202 that made it harder to vote in Georgia, that he has elevated other pieces of information that feed into conspiracy theories about non-citizens voting in the state of Georgia and did this sham investigation where he found out that zero non-citizens voted in Georgia because it is illegal to do so. And the systems that we have in place that would stop that from happening were effective in doing that. But yet Raffensperger still continued to fear monger around that type of issue. Um, and I think it does in the eyes of sort of a middle of the road, somewhat informed voter, it does make it more challenging. You know, it would have been an easier argument for B. Win to make against Jody Heiss as somebody who not only supported 
Trump's election misinformation. But if he's the Secretary of State next time, you can almost guarantee that if Donald Trump has the opportunity to overturn an election result in Georgia, that somebody like Jody Heiss would willingly participate in that. And you can't really make that argument about Brad Raffensperger because he clearly did not previously in the last time that he was given the opportunity to. Um, and Brian Kemp also sort of fits in the same mold. Um, interestingly, though, Burt Jones does not fit in that mold. Burt Jones uh, has become a part of a group of uh, fake electors who have come under more scrutiny from both the Department of Justice at the federal level and prosecutors in Fulton County who are looking into whether or not uh, people up to and including Donald Trump can be charged in election fraud, charged with election fraud related crimes. Um, and Burt Jones is somebody who is, uh, he was a fake elector. He was a part of that group and he may be the subject of investigation or at least part of the group that is subject to investigation going forward. And so Luke, what do you think about, um, you know, how this might linger in our politics? You know, it, it seems like it may linger less for Raffensperger and, and by extension Kemp, but it is something that may continue to be a problem for Burt Jones in his quest to become Lieutenant governor. Well, the first place I would start is where you started, which is the Democrats who are being critical of how Raffensperger is being treated. I just frankly think you're wrong. They're wrong because I think you deserve to get praised for the good things you do and you deserve to be criticized for the bad things you do. And, you know, there's definitely contextualization that can be done. And I, I think Raffensperger's record should be examined in whole, but that doesn't mean that because he did one bad thing, you can't say he did a good thing. And there's that impulse in democratic politics that I think is just wrong. And, you know, again, this is a, a place that probably makes me a bad campaigner in the moment. If I wasn't running on B wins campaign, I would probably say something different, but I'm not. So, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to take the high ground while I can. Um, and so I, I think this lingers for Raffensperger and his staff in, in the same way that I'm sure they're still getting insane threats. And I'm sure his wife is having to deal with horrible, despicable texts from insane strangers. Um, but I think politically speaking on a, on the, a higher level um, that there's, there's more risk for Burt Jones than there is reward for Raffensperger. Cause I'm sure there's a lot of people who, you know, the Romney Biden voters, they're going to be on the fence about voting for Raffensperger and Kemp in a way that they won't be for Burt Jones is what I think is we're going to see is that there's going to be some variation, I think, in Georgia's top offices. And it's going to be really interesting to watch because we have an incumbent Democrat senator with an incredibly weak candidate. Uh, that I, I mean, I could see a world where, you know, we have Warnock, Kemp, Bailey, and Raffensperger win. Like, I would not be shocked if that's what happened, uh, depending on how bad uh, Jones's problems are. And we're just starting to see the extent of his problems. So, you know, I, I, th I think these are some developing threads, um, but I, I think all in all, they're, they're positive for Raffensperger and they're really negative for Jones potentially. Well, big get for Democrats. If the one statewide office they're able to secure is Lieutenant governor, the one that does nothing. <laughs> yeah. And, and, 
it, they do nothing now, and uh, we both know that if uh, Bailey did win, they would uh, pass a bill very quickly to say the lieutenant governor does get to preside over uh, the Senate and nothing else because that's the one job nobody wants. So I, I, I think on, on that front, um, Bailey, you know, God bless him because it'd be yeoman's work to uh, deal, deal with watching the Senate uh, and, and presiding over it when you can't really do much else. I mean, if he ran for attorney general, like he started, like he'd actually have to like do a job if he won that job. So, uh, you know, getting paid to do nothing, maybe not so bad. Um, but yeah, I do think it is, it opens up an interesting opportunity for Democrats to continue this thread in a way that they would not otherwise have been able to do against Kemp and Raffensperger by, it'll be interesting to see if, uh, Stacey Abrams or B. Wynn, tries to get Brian Kemp or Brad Raffensperger to throw Burt Jones under the bus and basically try to get them. And I would look for this in the Atlanta press club debates. When you get to ask the questions, Stacey Abrams and B win, if you're listening, this might be an interesting question idea asking them about what they think of Burt Jones participation in the fake elector scheme and whether or not Burt Jones was right to do so. You probably get a non-answer, but, it would be interesting to see if if Kemp or Raffensperger or anybody else on the statewide ticket would throw Burt Jones under the bus, uh, particularly if Burt Jones or anyone else who's a fake elector becomes uh, the subject of like real criminal charges out of the investigations that are ongoing. Uh, and even more than that, I think it gives uh, Charlie Bailey a really interesting opportunity to align himself more with Kemp and Raffensperger and say that Burt Jones is the outlier. I'm, you know, if you like Kemp and Raffensperger, I'm more like them than Burt Jones is. And to some extent that it's a nuanced argument, but I, I think Bailey's capable of, of making it and, and making it clear that if you're for reasonable governance and upholding the constitution, then he's the better choice than, uh, Jones. Well, and, uh, Charlie Bailey did mention that he, he went right after Burt Jones in his uh, election night victory speech after the primary runoff, went right after Burt Jones specifically on being a fake elector and the extent to which Burt Jones has uh, put himself outside of the mainstream by backing Trump's election misinformation. So, you know, I, I don't know. It, it does create some tension, you know, Charlie Bailey is probably the Democratic nominee for lieutenant governor because Stacey Abrams endorsed him. Um, and he is in the lieutenant governor's race because leading Democrats basically asked him to leave the attorney general's race and leave that race to Jen Jordan. So I think there is some expectation that Charlie Bailey should be a team player as it relates to other Democrats. And if, if Charlie Bailey sets himself apart to say, I'm like Brian Kemp, I'm like Brad Raffensperger in that I, uh, you know, will will do things that are not offensive and things that you can agree with. And I don't believe that uh, Donald Trump won the election in Georgia and should have been able to overturn the results. I do think that creates some tension for the other Democratic campaigns if Bailey tries to align himself with Kemp and Raffensperger explicitly, but singling, uh, but singling Burt Jones out as somebody who did get Trump's endorsement, did participate in this scheme, and would probably be someone 
who would be willing to do whatever is within his power to help overturn election results in the future, that is something that is at Charlie Bailey's disposal in this campaign. All right, so a lot on the show today. There's been a lot actually to happen in the last month. We finally got out of our kind of like sleepy summer news phase that we've been in for a little while here in uh, Georgia yet again. We're the center of the political universe. So we will be back to cover these races as they continue to develop. We're headed straight for general election day now. That's that's the, the big upcoming thing, um, and we will be here to cover it. But for now, Luke, thank you as always for joining the podcast, our special guest. Yeah, special guest. Yeah. May the force be with us all. (laughs) All right. We'll talk to you again soon. Go dogs. Go dogs. Thanks for tuning into Peach Pod. If you liked what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back with another episode next week. Until then, take care, y'all.